So those of you um, who know, we have a, an email that goes out every Friday that has the uh, PDF version of this week's bulletin. It's a, we call it the e-bulletin recipient list. If you would like to be put on that list, uh, you can indicate that on your communication card and place that in a basket. We'll be sure to get you on that mailing list and get you a copy of that each week. Some of you um, really like to know what's coming up. You like when there's a new sermon series, you like to see the graphic. Uh, many of you like to know what passage we'll be preaching from so you can look at that passage beforehand and prepare. And if you got that bulletin email Friday or if you came in this morning and grabbed a bulletin off your seat or from the basket back there and looked at the, the new graphic there that you see on the screen now and if you uh, were looking at the passage we'll be in today, you might all be wondering the exact same thing right now and that question is, why are we still spending time at Christmas? Why are we still at Christmas? Why are we talking about these guys on the camels here when it's January already? We had our covenant renewal service last week. We turned the corner. We prepared ourselves for the new year. Um, Why are we still camping out uh, way back then? Uh, Well, the answer is um, we are in the liturgical season of Epiphany or Epiphany Tide, which is the period of time between Epiphany, which is January 6th, all the way up until uh, Ash Wednesday, which kicks off the season of Lent. And if you've never heard the word epiphany before, it comes from the Greek word epiphania, which means appearance or manifestation. And the scriptures use that word when talking about uh, the first and second comings of Christ. Uh, But the liturgical season focuses on the appearing of Christ uh, to uh, the Magi. Or you may have heard them called the Magi. The Magi, the Magi. You can pick which, however you want to call it. I think the technical correct way to say it is Magi. Um, but that's what the season of Epiphany tends to focus on primarily. But also in some traditions, uh, it looks at, uh, it includes the baptism of Jesus um, and maybe even all the way up to the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. So it's this idea that the Son of God has manifest his presence. He's made himself, he has appeared. He has made himself Uh, visible and available. And this is my, uh, by my count, seventh epiphany season since I've been preaching regularly on Sunday mornings here at EMC. And to date, I have preached an epiphany-themed sermon series exactly zero times. So uh, to fix that, we're going to spend the next five Sundays here uh, in Matthew chapter 2. So if you grabbed one of those guest Bibles back there, we'll be there on page 772. And by the way, uh, when I say guest Bibles, they're available to anybody who would like to use one. Um, But especially those who maybe don't have a Bible at home or maybe uh, don't have one in the translation that I preach from, which is the New Living Translation, or perhaps you even know somebody that doesn't have a Bible and you'd like to take one to give to them. So guest Bible sort of encompasses all of that. And those are free for you to take for yourself or to, to give to somebody. And I know folks are doing that because um, I've got, we've gone through multiple boxes of those Bibles just in the last year or so. It's amazing. Those Bibles are going, and, and that's why they're there. So um, we'll just keep buying boxes if you want to keep giving them to people who, who need them. So we're going to spend the next five weeks in Matthew chapter 2 examining the story there that uh, deals with a, a, a period of the Lord's life that is very early in his in his life there. We're, gonna, we're only going to get two verses into the chapter this morning, but I promise we'll go at a faster pace uh, over the weeks. We will get through the whole chapter by, by the time Lent uh, begins in February. So look, look together with me at Matthew chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1 and, and concluding in verse 2. 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men, or that's the English translation for Magi, from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, Matthew is a little different from, say, Luke, who we've spent time in Luke in years past around Advent season and Christmas time. Matthew is different in that he gives uh, really, he's scant with details regarding uh, the, the, the birth of Jesus, the, the period of time around uh, when he was born, he's pretty much giving us here uh, the location and the date. So we know uh, Jesus is there in, in you know, the area in Judea, um, and it's around the time of King Herod. And that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. There's no shepherds, there's, uh, there's no angelic choir singing, there's, there's nothing about a stable or a manger or swaddling clothes or any of those things. Matt, Matthew's pretty, uh, pretty scant with what he would share with us. But he does include... Some, some characters in his story that you won't find anywhere else. And that's these mysterious men from the East. And the truth is, they're actually more mysterious than we realize. Much of what we, we think we know about them is actually owed more to tradition than to the Scriptures. For example, um, how many of them were there? If you, does anybody want to take a guess? What, what have you been told your whole life? There are three, uh, but where does that where is that in Matthew? Uh, Matthew's silent about how many actual people were there. We know there were three gifts, but nothing about how many of the magi. Some Eastern traditions hold there there were twelve, but in the end, no one really knows. How about their names? Some of you may have names floating around your head that, that you don't even know where they came from. They're just names associated with these individuals, and yet, uh, despite what we see in you know in our Christmas cards or on the TV specials around that time of year, Matthew has them nameless. There's, there are no names. It's purely tradition that has uh, produced those names for us. And, and depending on which tradition and which culture you're talking about them uh, from, the, the names vary greatly on who they, who they actually were. How about this? Were they, were they actually kings, as the old Christmas carol goes? You remember that one, right? We, we three kings of Orient are... Uh, I actually really like that, that song. I, I, with all its historical inaccuracies, I actually enjoy that song. I enjoy singing it, and there's some good truth in there. But, um, you know, our nativities, they portray these men wearing the nice gold crowns, um, but there's nothing here in the text or even what we know about Magi from history that, that requires them to be kings or royalty of any kind. Speaking of nativity scenes, it's probably a mistake to even include them right there in the middle of it. Now, you're probably, in your mind, going over all the nativity scenes you have at your home. You probably have, I don't know, three, four, some of you, ten or twelve. I don't know. Some collect them. And, you, and they, my uh, sister-in-law has a, a beautiful um, shelving in her living room with all the ones she's collected over the years. And at, at Christmas time, you can see all the, the different ones there. Um, but really, if we're trying to be accurate, it's probably not right to even have them there next to the manger at all. It's far more likely that they saw the star that is referred to here, and, and it was then that they began their long journey to make their way there, a journey that may have spanned eight or 900 miles. And they probably traveled only at night so they could follow the actual star. There, you would assume that's when it was visible. And so um, they probably didn't arrive in, in Bethlehem or, or Judea until many months after Jesus was born. 
In fact, the text itself will say later on, as we'll get to as we're working our way through uh, Matthew chapter 2 over the weeks, it says later on in verse 16 that King Herod, who, by the way, was threatened at the idea that uh, a a rival king was being born right in his backyard, Um, he's so paranoid that this is happening that in verse verse 16 it says that um, he sent his men to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, and how did, what did he base that on? It says in the text, he based that on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. So there's a, there's a time frame right there that the scripture itself offers that basically, in a way, forbids us from placing these men at the manger the night Jesus was born, like all of our nativity scenes have them. In fact, verse 11 even says that when they finally got to Bethlehem, they didn't enter into a stable. They didn't find the baby in a manger. No, it says they went into the house. So where is this house? It's not the same story as, as the night Jesus was born. And, and I'm not trying, look, I'm not, my interest here is not to make you uh, feel bad for sending an, an inaccurate Christmas card, which you, many of you may have been guilty of doing that this year. And I'm not suggesting that you need to throw out all your nativity scenes or that you've been setting them up wrong all along. In fact, I, I actually think a good argument can be made for including the, the magi there in your nativity scene because they help tell the whole, the whole incarnation story. Uh, maybe you could do as, as the, the Wartmans do and you know, they have the nativity scene, but the, 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 those three are kind of over here off to the side, right? They're, they're en route to, to Bethlehem, but they're not quite there yet. Maybe that's what you could do. And, and you, can, you can keep sending all the beautiful Christmas cards to me you want, historically accurate or not, just so long as they don't have any of that dreadful glitter in them. Please, let's just do away with the glitter cards altogether if we could. Thank you very much. Look, I just want to know what the scriptures actually have to say. That is my interest. I want to know what the scriptures actually have to say. And and in a sense, that's sort of the point of the message today. So I'm sort of, I'm giving you sort of the end at the beginning. I, I want to know what the scriptures have to say, and, and as we go through this, this sermon here, I think you'll see that's sort of the point of the, of the whole message. So what do we really know about these mysterious individuals, and why does it matter? Well, the, the word that we, have, uh, that we translate wise men originally referred to a, a priestly cast of, of advisors to the Babylonian and Persian kings. But over time, the word magi came to be applied more widely to really any learned man in in the East who was, you know, particularly specialized in astrology or the interpretation of dreams, um, or in some cases, the magical arts. Uh, In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the term can be found in, and this should be no surprise to you, in the book of Daniel. Because you remember Daniel's story, right? Daniel is, is, an, uh, is a, a, a Jew living in Babylon. And so we find there in chapters 1 and 2 of Daniel that this word, the, in the Greek, this word that was referring to the, the Babylonian court magicians. And that's a really interesting and essential key, I think, to understanding what's going on here in Matthew uh, chapter 2. You, you may recall in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, the apostle Paul says, in the, uh, in the fullness of time, or in the NLT will say, when the right time came. But the, the more literal translation here is, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. What, is, what does he mean by that? 
What does it mean that in the fullness of time or when the right time came, God sent his son? Well, you and I know that God is the one who appoints times and, and seasons. And, and we can look at the, the many things that led up to and, and even things that occurred in the first century that show how God in his, in his sovereignty and in his providence prepared the world for the coming of his son precisely when he came. For example, um, some time before uh, the time of Jesus, there was a man, you may remember his name, uh, Alexander the Great. Do you remember what Alexander the Great did? He essentially conquers the known world and establishes, uh, spreads Hellenism, which is Greek culture. And, and with Greek culture, essential to it is the Greek language. And so really for the, for the first time since, you could argue, since the fall of the, uh, the Tower of Babel, um, the known world had something like a common tongue. That, didn't, that had not happened until this moment. And so here you have, in the fullness of time, God's word came into a world where everyone could understand what he has to say. Isn't that interesting? Also, prior to the coming of Jesus, you have uh, the Roman Empire, which, which conquered uh, Greek, the Greek uh, Empire, and established uh, an even firmer sort of uni- unifying government over the known world. And thanks to the Roman Empire, you have um, relative peace throughout the known world. You have the ability to travel, the ability to trade. Um, and so you have uh, these uh, cosmopolitan intersections of, of whole r- regions and cultures of people that were, were interspersed among one another, which um, maybe wasn't as possible before. Speaking of Rome and their occupation of, of Israel, that generated all manner of angst among the Jews uh, who did not want to be occupied. And because of that, there's a, a messianic hunger unlike ever before in the life of God's people. And it is into this sort of cocktail of circumstances that God sent his son born of a woman. But prior to these things, and this is where I'm going with this, prior to these things, there was another event in, in the history of God's people that prepared for the coming of Christ. And it is, as we noted back in Advent, when we were working our way through Isaiah and his message to a people who were on the threshold of what? Do you remember what major event was coming to the life of God's people? Their captivity and exile. Their captivity and their exile. God's people are taken out of their land and they're taken to all corners of the known world. I mean, that's Daniel's story. Daniel, this, this Israelite young boy or young man who's taken from his home and he's taken all the way to Babylon. And through the exile, even though it was God's judgment on his people, we see that through the exile, God had larger purposes in mind. Purposes for his people, but purposes for the whole world. I I think of the the early church in Acts chapter 8. You know, Jesus had told them through the Great Commission that that they will be his witnesses, that they were to to proclaim his name in Jerusalem, but then they were to go into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And yet by Acts chapter 8, they're all still hanging out there in Jerusalem, aren't they? So what happens? Uh, There's persecution breaks out. And because of the persecution among uh, the church, uh, Christians, for the first time, began leaving. They were beginning to fulfill the Great Commission. And just like that, we see in the, the the period of exile, the people of God being sent out into the world. 
And what did they take with them? They took the scriptures. They took the Old Testament. Maybe not in the exact form that you and I have it today, but they took the, their, their stories. They took their worldview. They took their prophecies. They took their expectations. They took the Old Testament wherever they went. And that can explain how wise men from the East would have ever even known about a coming Messiah or a star that would point him out in the first place. The diaspora or dispersion of Jews meant that the Hebrew messianic expectation was known even to the most remote region of the known world. And these particular stargazers were waiting for the sign that he had come. It's fascinating, isn't it? In the fullness of time, God sent his son. Now, the arrival of these men sets up an interesting contrast in Matthew, and it establishes sort of a theme that we're going to see, not just in this chapter, but really that it's, if we were to, and who knows, maybe we'll see how the Spirit leads. Maybe for Lent we'll continue on in Matthew. I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. It's, uh, by then, you know, maybe when Lent comes around, like Paul Harvey says, by then you'll know the rest of the story. But um, for now, at least, uh, you just have to take me at my word that this, this theme of co- this contrast that is established here in this chapter will continue on throughout the gospel. And, and it is this, that Jesus is rejected by the people who should have welcomed him, and he's welcomed by the people that you would have logically thought should have rejected him. Right? We call these magi wise, but really in, in the eyes of people in Jesus' day, in that particular culture, um, they would not have been considered wise to the good Israelite at all. At least not wise according to the things of God. In fact, according to the things of God, this cast of people would have been viewed as fools. You know, the word, the word magi in Jewish and Christian circles was used pejoratively. It wasn't a, a nice term. These weren't people that you associated with or spent time with or, or necessarily welcomed. Take, for example, the only other times in the New Testament we see this word appearing. It's in the book of Acts. In chapter 8 and in chapter 13, you have the story of Simon the magician in chapter 8 and then Bar-Jesus the sorcerer in chapter 13. Simon the magon. That's the, the literal Greek word. Uh, Bar-Jesus the Magon. These are practitioners of sorcery and magic. The former, of course, we're told in chapter 8, was baptized and was fascinated with the things of God. But then as he saw Peter and the apostles laying hands on people and they were receiving the Holy Spirit, he thought that he could buy that power from them. Not a good character, is he? And the latter, who was struck blind for perverting the word of God in his attempt to, um, well, really to deceive the governor of the island of Paphos. You see, magicians and sorcerers and astrologers doing deeds of wickedness would not have been revered as dignitaries to be welcomed and honored by the people of God, which makes their inclusion in Matthew's story that much more significant to me. I mean, for starters, it adds a, a ring of authenticity to the story, doesn't it? Right? It would have been an embarrassment to the early church that has always repudiated astrology and magic to, for them to have invented this, this, uh, this crew of people showing up at, at the, 
Mary and Joseph's front door. It would have been an embarrassment to have just manufactured this if it hadn't really happened. It's kind of like the, the resurrection accounts that, that have the women being the first ones to arrive at the empty tomb, the women being the first ones to witness the resurrection. In, in, a, in a patriarchal society such as that, that's not how you, if you, were, if you were writing the story from scratch and you're trying to impress people and get their attention, you wouldn't start like that. And so their presence here adds to the authenticity of Matthew's account. But more importantly, going back to this, this theme of contrast, to have the, the king of the Jews recognized and honored first, not by his own people, you know, the, the ones who should have recognized the signs, the ones who should have been there arriving at the doorstep, the ones who should have been eager to, to present you know, what they had to offer and to worship him, um, they're not the ones who, who identify him first. There's nothing out of well, Herod's mouth about any, any such king. In Herod's mind, he's the king of the Jews. And we'll see next week as we get into his story, we'll see that the, sort of the, the sentiment all throughout Jerusalem is not one of excitement or messianic you know, celebration, but something different altogether. To have the king of the Jews recognized and honored first by outsiders sets up the scene for the ministry of the Messiah who would go on to be entirely rejected by his own people and whose disciples are instructed to recruit from, not from within their own ranks, but from throughout the nations. They're the only ones in Matthew, aside from the angel there in chapter 1, who identify the son of Mary for who he really is. It's kind of like the book of Mark. We're the only ones who consistently identify Jesus correctly at all. For chapters are the demons. <laughs> it's, it's an incredible indictment against the, the, the Israelite people. That God fulfilled all of his promises in the sending of his son. All the prophecies that pointed to his identity and his arrival, and yet none of them noticed it or cared. And so it all begs the question, why is, why is this story here at all? Why are these guys here? Or let's put it another way, perhaps more, more to the point. What was it that really led them to Bethlehem? What was it that really was guiding them? I mean, we look in verse 2, and, and it sort of answers the question, but it also doesn't answer the question. Right? So if we look at verse 2, it says, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose. All right, so we, we know that they were following some sort of celestial event, and I'm not going to pretend to know what that was or how to explain it. You, you pull a, any commentary that's available out there from liberal to conservative, and they're going to give you all sorts of different ideas of, of what the star, how the star was there. And you'll have the naturalistic explanations, and you'll have the supernaturalistic explanations. And I, I'm not interested in any of it. I don't need to know how it was there. I just believe that it was. And, and so we know from the text that they were, they were following some sort of celestial event in the sky. But here's the question that I want to ask. In light of all the things that I've been saying, it's sort of like one of those sermons where there's kind of one point at the end and everything else is sort of pre preparing you for it. 
So if you persevered this far, hang in just a few more minutes and I'm going to be done. My question is, how did they, how are they able to make any sense of that star to begin with? Yeah, so they saw the star, but how did they know what it meant? How did they know what it meant? Why did they care? Why did they go through the trouble? Why were their intentions to present offerings? Why was it their desire to behold the king of the Jews that they might worship him? That's the question. And I would contend that these magi were indeed wise in the things of God. And not because of their astrology, not because of their philosophy, not because of some sort of magic or any of those other things. They were wise in the things of God because of their belief in and their obedience to the scriptures. That's what makes them wise. That's the difference in their lives. Their belief in and their obedience to the scriptures. It's why they watched. It's why they waited. Because they knew about, they were familiar. They were familiar with what the promises were. They were aware of the prophecies and they believed in it. And so they watched and they waited and they trusted passages like Numbers 24, 17, where where Balaam, who by the way, another non-Israelite visionary, kind of a precursor almost to the, the Magi. It's, it's interesting how God, how God sort of lays these, these types of, of later individuals to come. Balaam, in, in Numbers 24, 17, said, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a star will rise from Jacob. A star will rise from Jacob. Balaam was prophesying the coming of a Messiah another greater son of David. And he says, I I see him, I perceive him coming, but from a distance. Balaam, once again, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he probably didn't fully understand it, but but he understood enough to to share what what was being impressed upon his heart and what the the Spirit was enabling enabling him to see. He, He saw the star coming, he perceived the star coming, but as from a distance. And because of this, this prophecy, the most hopeful, the most faithful believer was watching and waiting for this star to rise, for this deliverer to come, this, this greater David to arrive on the scene of world history. And with the aid of God's special revelation, with the aid of the word of God, these wise men were able to see and understand and interpret the signs in nature. And that, in my opinion, is perhaps the lesson of this story so far. The key lesson. If we miss this this morning, then you might as well have just checked out and gone to sleep in this sort of dark, moody room that we're in right now. This is a lesson that is going to be found in other places in the scriptures. It's underscored from cover to cover. It's especially spelled out in Romans chapter 1. And that's your homework that no one's going to grade you on or check up on later because I'll probably forget I said this tomorrow. But if you are so inclined and you're a note taker, maybe you write down, check out Romans chapter 1 later on. 
This is truth that we'll find there, perhaps more clearly than anywhere else, but here we see it in practice. We see it in, in actual people, real people's lives, who flesh and blood just like you and I. Here's the key lesson. It is this. The general revelation of God in nature may be sufficient for people to know that God exists, but it is not sufficient on its own to reveal God in a saving way. Do I need to repeat that? The general revelation of God in nature may be sufficient for mankind to recognize that God exists. Right? You, you can go to the, the beach and you can look out across the vastness of the ocean and you can sense how small you are. And the magnificence of it can point you to something bigger than yourself. You can, you can get a telescope and you can search the vastness of the universe and then when we hear these, the, the science of, of astronomy and we, we think about the, the impossibly gigantic nature of the known universe and it talk about vastness. I mean, it makes the, the ocean, I mean, it's, it's, the ocean's an afterthought in, in light of the, the universe. Just our own galaxy, the size of our galaxy, and to think our galaxy is one of, of millions, billions, trillions of galaxies. It's, 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 it boggles the mind. And somewhere in there, as the scriptures say, the heavens declare the glory of God. You can look at nature and detect the fingerprints of a creator. He's left his fingerprints everywhere, from the vastness, from the majesty, from the beauty, from the order, from the design. But for all of general revelation's ability to make known the existence of God, it is insufficient on its own to make him knowable in a saving way. In other words, the stargazer, the philosopher, the, the deep thinker who sees the fingerprints of God in his creation needs something more. He needs the special revelation of God contained in his word to know God rightly as he is, in a way that might result in saving faith. Friends, the, the Magi, at the end of the day, they weren't following a star. They were following the scriptures. And as a result, they found God himself. You see? You see the point? They followed the scriptures, and as a result, they found God in the flesh. Probably toddling around, you know, Joseph and Mary's little temporary apartment there in Bethlehem. How many others across Persia do you think might have seen the exact same celestial event? They weren't the only stargazers. Stargazing was was widespread in the ancient world. I mean, you can ask any historical authority whatsoever that looks at any point in, in history prior to, 
to today, and you'll see that stargazing has always been fundamental to human nature. We, we want to look up and perceive and understand, and, and we're, we're amazed by what we see. So stargazing was not exclusive to one or two individuals. No, it was widespread, and yet just these guys show up. How many others might have seen the exact same thing? But they lacked the ability to understand its meaning. And they lacked the faith to believe it was true. And I wonder in the same way, how many people in the world today are in need of someone to show them how the scriptures make sense of everything. How the scriptures are alone, able, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and don't miss the language. It's intentional. Paul tells Timothy, the scriptures alone are able to give the wisdom necessary to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. How many people in your life need someone like you to show them that God's word has the answers to the questions that matter most? I met a gentleman recently, and I'm not going to say much about him because I don't want to, if he were to ever find out that I talked about him like this, I wouldn't want to embarrass him or draw unfair attention to him, but um, a gentleman with seemingly no interest in the things of God. In fact, by his own admission, he's pretty much interested in things that have no consequence whatsoever. And I, I, I just, last time I saw him, I looked him in the face and I said, listen, let me know when you want to talk about things that matter because that's what I do. I may not do it well. I may not be the best at it. I'll probably get something wrong. But when you're ready to talk about something that really matters, I'll be ready for that. I wonder how many people in the world, in your world, need someone like you to come into their life with a Bible. Take one in as you go. <laughs> you may not understand it all, Lots there to learn. Spend your whole lifetime studying. You'll never fully know it all. People expect me to know it all because I'm a pastor. I promise I don't. I'm doing my best. But they need someone like you to take, a, take the scriptures. And you may not know it all, but you know enough to say, look, I don't have all the answers, but I know the one who does. And I know where to find truth and it alone is going to make sense of, of everything around you. And it alone is going to give you what your life truly needs. We don't know much about these mysterious visitors who traveled far, but we know this. Their lives were guided by belief in the truth of God's word. Their lives were guided by the belief in the truth of God's word. We also know that they were convinced that the one that the scriptures pointed to could be found. They believed he could be found. And lastly, their purpose in finding him was that they might come to worship him. As far as I can tell, that makes these guys, as mysterious as they are, the very template the very pattern 
very model for truly wise living. Because their journey was not to a destination, it was to a person. The one to whom all of nature and scripture point. The one who was promised to come. The one who alone is worthy of all praise. So what about your journey? Wherever you are en route to something. What's your destination? Where are you heading and why? Do you truly believe God's word to be true? Boy, that's a question I hope you've been confronted with this morning. I hope that you are challenged to to consider where you stand with regard to God's word and what the implications are of that one way or the other? Is it your desire to actually know what it says? I told you at the very beginning, I'm not here to, you know, criticize your Christmas cards and nativity scenes. I just want to know what the scriptures say. Is that your desire? Are you so convinced that those who seek the Savior with all their hearts will find him? Well, the question is, is he findable? And all signs point to yes. Are you so prepared to present him your treasures once you do? The whole purpose of God is to bring men and women face to face with his beloved son. That we might come to know him as Savior and Lord and friend. Perhaps today is the day where you can open yourself up to the manifestation of his presence in your life and in your heart. To behold him face to face, heart to heart, and believe. I think that would make this epiphany tide a special one indeed. Come and behold him. The greeting cards have at least one thing right, and with this I'll close. And you've heard this many times, but I'm going to borrow it, and and I hope it won't be cheesy. Wise men and women still seek him. They still seek him. I invite you to seek him as we close our service. Pastor Jeff, Lord, I thank you for uh, the the mystery of your word. I thank you that um, it doesn't give every answer. We don't know everything there is to know about these men. We don't know every single thing about Jesus, your earthly life and ministry. The Gospel of John says there's not enough books in all the world to contain all the stories. So we don't, we don't, the scriptures don't give us exhaustive knowledge. No, the scriptures give us sufficient knowledge to be saved, to have life in abundance, to know you personally, to have a relationship with you, to be reconciled to you, to have the the right boundaries for the Christian life. It doesn't have everything we, we, it could possibly say, but it has everything that we need. So Lord, I pray that you would impress upon all of our hearts the sufficiency of the scriptures and the, the right place that they should occupy in our lives. And I'm confident that if we, if we re- receive that and respond to that, that we will inevitably come face to face with God. That we, we will come to know you rightly.
Lord, may that be the fruit of all of our journeys here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.